Find a moment of calm at Classical WETA 90.9 FM. Available to stream now at classicalweta.org or on the Classical WETA app. Welcome to episode 35 of How We Win. All over the country, people are staying home, staying safe, and doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now, right from your living room. That's right. And the best antidote to the anxiety that we're all surely feeling is action. We need your help, and we're going to get through this together. What's the most effective way to reach voters while you're staying at home? Writing letters. Specifically, get out the vote letters from Vote Forward. We're excited to announce the Big Send. And to tell us more about it, we are joined by the founder of Vote Forward, Scott Foreman. Then we'll hear from one of our partners in the Big Send, political strategist and host of the Democracy in Color podcast, Steve Phillips. Steve is going to talk to us about the new American majority, give us his suggestion for VP, and of course, talk about what gives him hope for November. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Win. win. So happy Thursday, Mariah. We're releasing our podcast one day late because we have some big news to break and we didn't want to jump the gun on announcing the big send. How many people out there aren't really sure what day it is to begin with. <laughs> We're going to confuse them a little bit more. All the days are starting to run together. You're so but right. This is dropping on Thursday, so if you're one of our amazing subscribers who gets this automatically, happy Thursday. Sorry if we confused you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're going to talk about the big send where we're teasing that. People are like, what is that? I got to I gotta find out. We're going to let you know in a couple minutes. Yes. And we're going to hear from Scott Foreman, the executive director and founder of Vote Forward, who's really going to tell you all about it. You know who won't be reading <laughs> letters? <laughs> any letters from volunteers? <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, all the letters that people will write, Trump will not read them because he doesn't read. I mean, we, we knew that. I assumed that his daily intelligence briefings came in the form of comic strips or, you know, if it's not on Fox news, he's not going to, or CNN, like, like, let's be clear. He does watch CNN, but you know, he's not getting a whole lot of information that's been typed up and put in a binder for him. This has been documented. They went into detail on it in the uh, really great book, a very stable genius, which you should check out if you haven't already. They had to continually dumb down his uh, daily uh, briefings. Uh, He he responds better to, as you said, comic strips and charts and graphs and doesn't like things. And so we've known this for a while. But recently reporting came out that said the coronavirus had been uh, featured prominently uh, not once, not twice, but upwards of 20 times starting as early as January um, mm-hmm. in these briefings, and uh, and he just wasn't interested in it. Right. I believe when he was asked about that, he said he was going to go back and <laughs> check and see if it if it had made an appearance somewhere. So, right. I don't know. I feel like I would remember that if I read a memo about like a, a 
global pandemic that was ravaging <laughs> other parts of the world, it might stand out. But yeah, who knows what's in these briefings? Because we don't have the security clearance. If there's stuff about, you know, aliens and Russia and what have you, then maybe the pandemic <sighs> is less memorable. I don't know. You would think ensuing global pandemic mentioned like 20 times in you know 20 separate briefings that that would ring a bell somewhere we do know that somewhere somehow he learned what lysol was and and thought he'd you know bust that out on us well we all know by now about his disinfectant uh comments and uh saying that Maybe we could look into in injecting disinfectant to kill the coronavirus, you know, just but he was recently asked about those comments and the people who have come into the hospital after taking that advice. And once again, he says, no, no responsibility. But fortunately, we have um, we have a good role model who is actually leading the coronavirus, you know, response in Vice President Mike Pence. Set, mm? Setting the right tone. Oh, yeah? Oh, did I say good? I meant even worse. <laughs> Explain yourself. <laughs> when I say good role model, I'm using sarcasm <laughs> in actually the correct way, <laughs> the correct sense of of the word sarcasm. Right. Mike Pence toured the Mayo Clinic, which had coronavirus patients in it. Um, face mask free. In his defense, when asked about that, he said he didn't want to wear the face mask because he wanted to be able to look people in the eye. <laughs> you can't oh make God. this shit up. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, listen, if if he's been covering his eyes with the face mask, then no wonder he's not wearing it. Of course he wouldn't wear it. That would be hella dangerous. But um, I don't think we've seen... Mike Pence or Trump with a face mask on um, since all of this began. They seem to have some like weird aversion to it. I don't know if it's that they want us to see their faces. You know, God forbid we don't see Donald Trump's face or my guess. It feels like they would think that it was like unmanly to wear a face mask. Oh, I yeah. just have this weird like suspicion that that's what this is about. Like it doesn't look manly to walk around 100%. in a face in a face mask. And let me tell you, what's more manly than protecting your community or <laughs> patients at a hospital? Manly or womanly? Um, no need to no need to feel sh ashamed about it, people. And no need to shame other people about it too, which apparently is what. Trump has done when people in his briefings or in his private meetings have been wearing face masks or he's kind of made jokes about it and, and you know, belittling them. Uh, Glad to know he's taking this very seriously. We have a serious void of leadership and, um, and we've now hit the one million case mark. We've uh, had more Americans die from this disease in the last couple of months than than did in Vietnam in total. It's easy to dunk on on really stupid people like this, but it's um so sad and, and you know my heart goes out to everyone who is really uh affected and lost, you know, loved ones. Um more and more we are coming in contact with this disease firsthand. 
And, um, you know, we're going to get through it together, but we have a job to do to make sure that we have some real leadership, not what we have in the White House, not what we have in the Senate with Mitch McConnell making comments that the state should declare bankruptcy and trying to stack these relief bills for corporations and his buddies. Right. Um, you know, polls are tightening in these battleground Senate races, and um, the GOP is worried, and we have work to do, and we have great ways to do it from home right now. So let's keep our eye on the prize. Let's let's keep working. Thank you for shifting the, the tone in that, because I mean, obviously, like, this is very seriously. Everybody's taking it super seriously. I haven't left my street in I don't know how long. Yeah. But man, if I didn't try to laugh about some of this, yeah, exactly. I don't know where I would be. Yep, gazing off into the abyss, <laughs> staring off to the steely <laughs> abyss, waiting for sweet relief. What? That I, I weren't really dark there. <laughs> we're back, and we're back. We're back with. Uh, oh, we had a primary Tuesday night, the Ohio primary. Of course, Joe Biden <laughs> won the primary, but also um, we have state state ledge candidates now that we're going to be working on. Ohio is such an important state. It's always a perennial mm-hmm. uh, important presidential state, but uh, we have real opportunities with the state legislature there. As Mariah always likes to say, down ballot is where it's at, and working on those races pay dividends up the ballot. So um Take a peek at what's going on in Ohio. That's some exciting races we can be working on there. Yeah, I can't wait to look into that. That's going to be an area that's ripe for volunteer activity. Ripe and ready. uh, uh, Heading into the fall. Yeah. Well, what's your reason for hope this week, Mariah? Okay, so my reason for hope this week is the Movement for Black Lives has created a comprehensive list of COVID-19 related policy demands that are going to ensure that the Black community is included in policies and legislation uh, that's coming out to protect people and help them in the economic recovery that we're going to need after um, the pandemic kind of Mm -hmm. slows down a little bit. So this includes access to healthcare and housing, prioritizing people over corporations, protecting the vote, policies to protect vulnerable people who are currently incarcerated. So these are issues that are perennial policy issues that are the result of longtime disparities, but they are going to become even more pronounced with this health pandemic and the economic hit that we're all going to take because of it. And I just want to remind people that these are things that disproportionately affect the Black community, but they are things, these policy demands are going to be good for the entire country. So I want to encourage everybody to visit m4bl.org so they can take a look, get the details, sign the petition if they um, agree with these demands, which to me seem like no-brainers. And um, thank you to the Movement for Black Lives for putting together a really great website very quickly. That's awesome. We'll, of yeah, course have the great. Link, we'll have the link up on our show page. And um, as you said, you know, no surprise, black and brown people are disproportionately affected by all of these things, but by COVID too, you know. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, it's kind of like the, the terrible, perfect storm of things coming together. It's, it's, uh, it's very dangerous. 
Yeah. It reminds me last week when we talked to um, the Pantsuit Politics hosts, I think it was Sarah that made the analogy with her kids that, okay, we built this tower out of blocks. The blocks have all come down. We don't have to build that tower back the same way. You know, there's an, right. there's actually an opportunity here to address these long-time issues and and see if we can do some real good and, and have a, an even more equitable return once we get back to whatever our new normal is. So. Exactly. Well said. Uh, what's your reason for hope this week? Well, my reason for hope is very on Swing Left brand because I'm really excited about the big send. I'm not going to get too deep into it because we've got Scott Foreman, executive director and founder of Vote Forward, to talk about it. But we have people all over the country who are who are engaged, who are volunteering. Um, I, I always like to say doing say extraordinary that, things, maybe doing extraordinary things, <laughs> realizing that action is the best antidote to anxiety. Um, I always like to say with uh, say this with the, the caveat that if you're listening to this podcast and when you hear the the thought about volunteering right now, it, it just makes you feel like, oh, I just don't have time. I'm juggling mm-hmm. my homeschooling my kids, and I, there's so you know so much uncertainty. That's totally fine, you know. Oh yeah, everyone is dealing with this in their own way. We also recognize that many of us, you know, really have a lot more privilege than other people do and the ability to do stuff that other people don't. So, you know, we all do what we can when we can. Having said that, we've got the Big Send launching right now. It's an epic undertaking by a number of organizations led by Vote Forward in partnership with Swing Left to write 10 million letters to voters for the November election. Holy moly. It's exciting. That is exciting. And it's totally doable. Scott's going to talk in a minute about how it's doable. And when you hear the number of letters that people have already sent, you're going to say, oh, we can do that. No problem. I'll just get to writing. You go onto the Vote Forward website and you download these templates. All the instructions are there for, Mm -hmm. for what you do. It basically amounts to printing out these letters and uh, filling in a little area that asks why you vote, why you're a voter, so you can write a personal message there, and then writing the address uh, handwritten on the outside of the envelope too, so people get a handwritten addressed envelope in the mail. And these letters have been really, really effective. They're a great yeah. way to to mobilize voters. Yeah, and you're going to get a chance to um, join us and Uh, Sarah and Beth from Pantsuit Politics on May 24th. We're going to have a big letter writing party that's going to be part of the big send. Yes. Save the date. We'll have the, we have the link to the event on our page, May 24th. Also my birthday. Let's not forget that. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I should have started there. (laughs) Not as important. (laughs) So in just a few minutes, we're going to hear from uh, Steve Phillips, who has an excellent podcast, Democracy in Color. And you've probably read his writing in, in newspapers and magazines all over the country. Yeah. Um, and if you get confused by all the Steves and Scotts coming up <laughs> in, in these two interview segments, don't worry. They sound very different and the conversations are great. So in a few minutes, we'll hear from Steve. But first up is the interview with Scott. 
Scott Foreman, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. First of all, you founded Vote Forward. What gave you the idea and uh, when did you start it up? Tell us a little bit about the Vote Forward origin story. Yeah, sure. Uh, Happy to. So we're about three years old. I started the project in 2017. And like a lot of people, I was really looking for something that I could do personally to have an impact on uh, our political environment. I don't come from the political world. My background is in uh, software mostly. Uh, and so, you know, I had some experience with various tech startups. Um, the most important one for this story uh, is a company called Opower. Um, either are you familiar with Opower? I am not. I oh, am, yes. but why don't you explain what it is to Steve? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, well, you don't have to shame me with the explanation. <laughs> okay. We'll do a no shame explanation. Right. <laughs> Way smarter. Everyone knows that. Please continue. Okay. Yeah. So Opower um, was a, still is a, um, a company that does really big behavioral science-based direct mail campaigns to encourage people to reduce their home energy consumption. Um, So in some ways, that was a very useful professional experience to have for this purpose, um, because what we did there was harness some of these social nudges, nudge type um, Mm -hmm. messages Mm -hmm. um, to get people to use less energy. And we were able to show through some really big experiments that it works and it works really well and consistently. And so that was a for-profit and it was a really great experience, but I had been nursing for a long time the idea that we might be able to use similar kinds of tactics to influence civic uh, activities like voting. And so it's kind of the combination of that, the lessons learned there and a lot of personal anxiety about the state of our politics that inspired, (laughs) you know, this, this project and everything that we've done since. So you're you came to vote forward through um, like it's real strategy and and evidence based process. It sounds like I thought maybe you were going to say like you were like Meghan Markle, like a professional handwriter. And then you decided to turn that into, <laughs> into a career. But it sounds no. like vote forward had like a much more scientific birth than that. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's I think that's safe to say. So one of the lessons learned from Opower was that uh, when you can do a randomized controlled trial to see whether your idea works, you absolutely should. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of a combination of that scientific inclination and uh, some of the specific tactics, um, but including the one you're referring to, which is that the whole thing is oriented around handwritten letters. So the specific tactic that we experimented with in 2017 and 2018 was to have a fellow citizen. In the first instance, it was just me writing a thousand letters at my kitchen table (laughs) uh, to people and see if it caused them to vote. And we were able to show that it, in fact, does. Um, My hand muscles very much worse for the wear. But um, (laughs) since then, we've gotten a lot of help from volunteers who who participate as well. So, yeah, that's kind of the background. That's cool. So we know the first thousand were done by you. How many have been done since then by volunteers? 
I'd have to check, but I think it's at least two million because in the end, oh. if you can believe that, um, in the end, we on the basis of those experiments that we did in seventeen and eighteen, I kind of decided to make it my full time job in twenty eighteen, and then we were able to recruit this really enormous army of volunteers um, in the lead up to the midterms. Um, so. I think we sent just north of 1.2 million in 2018, and then we've wow. done another at least million in 2019. Um, it might even be 1.5 or closer to two, uh, and then we'll talk more about our plans for for this year. But we're now uh, well into the millions, uh, which is still very hard for me to believe. Uh, but it's been you know very exciting and encouraging to see that happen. It's amazing. And with those millions of letters, you have a much larger sample size for which you can judge the efficacy of it. How are they looking now? Like, what are the results of all of those letters? How are they moving the needle for us? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a variety of different experiments that we've done. Not everything that we do is a randomized trial, but in the Alabama experiment, in that, that first one that we did, we saw an increase of about 3.4 percentage points between the treatment group and the control group, um, which is a sort That's of huge. startling number, <laughs> and yeah. kind of an, an impossible thing to replicate. I, I, I think that there was some luck there. But in the subsequent trials that we've done, including one in Ohio in 2018, and then uh, another experiment in 2019 in a special election in Pennsylvania, we've seen 1.4 percentage points, uh, 2.01 percentage points in that uh, Pennsylvania trial. So we've pretty consistently seen in the trials that we've done results ranging from one to three, and then in that one case, a little bit north of three percentage points, which wow. is really fantastic for this world. I mean, um, if you're not familiar, it might not sound like much, but that compares very favorably to a lot of the other tactics that people might be familiar with, like making phone calls and sending oh, yeah. text messages. And for people listening who might hear a percentage like 2% and think that's not a lot, you know, that's what we call field margins. That's actually incredibly significant, especially bearing in that the uh, races primarily that we're working with um, are really tight races where those 2%, you know, 1% even margin is the difference between winning and losing. So that's work that volunteers can do to literally win an election. Absolutely. And so for the volunteers who um, who participate in this, if, if people haven't done it before, they can go online, get approved very quickly and easily to become a sender and get a stack of letters to print off. And they're partially written. And then there's room for people to handwrite a, a personalized message. Can you talk about why it's both? Because I, I tried to get away with typing up <laughs> mine and was told not advisable. So why why the mix of print and handwriting? And what are some recommendations that you have for people to effectively personalize their letters? Yeah. So I actually did try handwriting the entire thing the first time around. And the main reason I didn't stick with it is because it was illegible. Um, because <laughs> um, a lot of people, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, have 
kind of like doctor handwriting, as they say. Right. <laughs> um, so, so the original idea was that I wanted to make sure that there were at least parts of it that the recipient could definitely <laughs> read. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's mostly that, but there is another advantage, which is that by having both, it makes them much faster to produce yeah. um, versus handwriting the whole thing, obviously. And then I guess the last reason is that we do use the typed part, the pre-written part of the letter to set the tone of the thing. So part of the message that we are making sure that everybody sends is a clear explanation of what the letter is for and why it's being sent. Um, so that stuff is uh, consistent um, in the typed part of the messaging. And then there's also very importantly, a line in the, in the template to emphasize that the sender isn't asking the recipient to vote for anybody in particular. What we're doing is really just about mobilization, not vote for X candidate or don't vote for Y candidate, but vote at all. And with this very civic virtue oriented lens. Um, and we do that both because we think it's probably more effective, but also because um, we, uh, we, we, we try not to make too many assumptions about, about the recipient. So mm -hmm. a message that really appeals to a shared identity as Americans, we want to make sure that always comes through. And so that's the other reason for having both. Now, why have the handwriting at all? Why, why were you discouraged from, from doing your, uh, your time-saving trick, Mariah? Um, I think the, <laughs> the, the reason is that, you know, part of the reason we think this thing works is that there's an investment of time and a little bit of money on the part of the sender to produce the thing. So it's a kind of like there's some skin in the game. Like if you get a letter in the mail that somebody took the time to hand write, you're going to think – that will be evident that somebody right. cared enough to, to do that. And so that's why both are important. Yeah. And those personal messages are, are what really cuts through the political noise too and connects us. So Exactly. And so you asked also about uh, the messages themselves. We don't give a lot of prescriptive guidance about that. Um, the message that people are asked to complete is an answer to why they, the sender, vote in every election they're eligible to vote in. And the only real guidance we give is to make it as personal as possible. So I've seen a, a lot of examples and some people are fairly brief and that's fine. You don't have to say all that much to make it resonate. But, you know, some of the more vivid examples that, that I've seen people talk about how hard one the right to vote at all is. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes people talk about memories of going to the polls with their parents um, as kids or taking their own kids to the polls. Um, so that kind of stuff, we definitely encourage. The more personal it feels, I think the better. Yeah. You talked about um, the people getting these letters. Who are they? Who are getting these letters and where do you get the addresses from? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, people often ask about that. So That's why I asked. <laughs> people always ask me that. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's a somewhat complicated answer to the who. And it's I do want to emphasize that. Uh, Vote Forward is a 501c4 
nonprofit organization, uh, which means that most of our work is for what's known as a core social purpose of increasing participation in our democracy by traditionally underrepresented parts of the electorate. So that's mm. typically uh, members of racial minorities, young people, uh, et cetera. And so for the bulk of the campaigns that you'll see on our website, those are the goals and those are the people that we're writing to in various states throughout the country. Then on top of that, because 501c4s like ours also are able to do some amount of explicitly political work, you'll also see campaigns um, on the website that are focused on people who we believe are very likely to vote for Democrats when they do vote. So those are kind of the two different categories of campaigns that we run. There's one thing that they have in common, which is that we're almost always writing to people who we think are unlikely, otherwise relatively unlikely to vote. And hmm. that is measured by what's known as a vote propensity, um, which is a model of likelihood to vote. Um, so it's really just a percentage of how, what are the odds that we, we think that any given person is going to show up, and it's mostly based on people's voting histories. Now, the other part of your question, how do we have access to that information? Well, it's basically public in most states who is on the voter rolls and their history of, of voting. And so usually it comes from a secretary of state or other uh, election authority. We don't typically get the data directly from the states. Instead, we use one of a few different commercial vendors that aggregate that data and normalize it mm. to make it easier to deal with. But the 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 heart of the answer is that um, the voter rolls are public. And so that's how we're mm -hmm. able to, to do these programs at all and also how we're able to see how well they worked. Great. Um, one mystery solved. Uh, so for people who uh, <laughs> who um, want to participate, they're going to have an opportunity coming up with the Big Send. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we alluded a few minutes ago to uh, our project for 2020. The big picture goal for this year is to increase the number of letters that we're sending by essentially another factor of 10. Um, so we've set this really ambitious goal of stockpiling and then sending 10 million voter turnout letters mm. in October of this year. And because it's a, you know, a, an exciting new project uh, to, to be so <laughs> concrete about that, and it's such a, an ambitious goal, we also decided to give it a name and builds, try to build some momentum around it. So we're calling the project The Big Send. And there is a, uh, a new landing place on the web, which is at thebigsend.org. And uh, it's, a, uh, it's also, in addition to being a rallying point around this big project of, uh, and big ambitious goal, it's also a coalition. So we've right. uh, done uh, some outreach to various partner organizations to form alliances uh, with other groups that are going to help us meet that goal. Um, and so we're excited to work with all of them. Including Democracy in Color, who we're about to speak with Steve Phillips about his organization, too. Oh, so. nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Swing Left is, uh, mm -hmm. is one of the participants, along with Indivisible and People for the American Way. And um, 
Daily Koss um, was mm-hmm. a, an ally of ours from the from the beginning in 2018, and uh, and an invaluable one. So they're participating. Uh, Stand Up America, um, the Women's March Foundation, and possibly a few more. What a great group of of allied organizations, and what an ambitious goal! This this <laughs> might be what we need to save the U.S. Postal Service. I love it. So that's a great point. Um, we're excited about that too. It's a convenient. Obviously, we had no idea that there would be a need to <laughs> drive a lot of support to the USPS. Um, but that is a uh, a convenient fact at the moment that the the this project gives people another reason as if they needed more to support that very important institution in our democracy. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's that the really dire need to support the postal service um and also just where we are at during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh this is something obviously you've been working on as you just explained for a number of years and Swing Left has been working with you for a while as a way to get our you know, volunteers from all over the country to reach the super states. But now more than ever, it's giving volunteers a really important and effective thing to do from their living rooms. And to think about 10 million letters. And it started with one guy sitting at home writing a thousand letters to voters and this idea that you had. I mean, if there's ever a story that that talks about how and what kind of an impact one person can make. Uh, yours mm-hmm. is that story. It's really powerful. Yeah, well, thanks. It's uh, it's nice to hear that. Um, it's still, I pinch myself still and think um, that it's shocking to me that um, that uh, through the power of the, the mail and thanks to the leverage that you get from building software and thanks to all the support from some really incredible people, friends and, and allies that we've been able to build this thing and make it make it work. But yeah, I think uh, that's um, that's it's it's been fun. Um, it's been a lot of fun to work on the project and and, and, ha- and see it grow this way. It's really exciting. So uh, the website for people to go to is thebigsin.org. Yes. And specifically for uh, for Swing Left users, it would be thebigsend.org slash swing left. Excellent. So everyone should go there and sign up and start writing letters. I think that's the idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do I have that right? Yes. Um, that, is, that, is, that is correct. That is what we are hoping that people will do. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, got it. We'll all do that. Excellent. We'll we'll be reminding people over the next few months, too. Good, good, good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. Great to hear about how everything behind the scenes works. Yeah. um, Thank you both. Um, It's a lot of fun to talk, and we'll keep you posted on how it goes as we we start to to rack up the the boxes um, and, uh, and get them ready for the fall. We're going to get there. 10 million is ambitious, but absolutely doable. Starting with all of our listeners, we're going to help you get there. I think so too. Thanks a lot. Steve Phillips is a national political leader, civil rights lawyer, and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He hosts the podcast Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, 
founded the political organization Democracy in Color and is the author of the best-selling book, Brown is the New White. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. How are you and how is social distancing going for you? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's going fine. I mean, it's funny people were not funny at all, but I guess people are talking about your personality impacting how you deal with it and that uh, for introverts, this is not really a bad situation at all. And then <laughs> yeah. um, somebody put it on Facebook, all you extroverts are crowding my me time with all these Zoom meetings. So. <laughs> yeah, we, we were interviewing um, Davi Waller, who is the creator of the show Mrs. America about the mm -hmm. ERA, and asked her the same question. And she's like, you know, I'm kind of thriving. I really right. hate going out anyway. So, but um, obviously tongue in cheek. Oh, right. So. Yeah, I know it's hard for some people to think about politics and elections right now, but the truth is the election is a, a little over six months away. Mm -hmm. um, and the pandemic and the response to it have shown us that we really need to be paying attention. So Steve, what are you focused on right now? Well, one thing is to make sure we have an election. Right. I mean, it's the yeah. the level of um, I think I was telling somebody that how much our democracy is like hanging by a thread. Mm. is really very significant. And it's, it's you know, starting with, well, not starting with, but seeing more recently, right, right, with the whole impeachment piece, all the evidence laid out, and then all these, you know, Senate uh, enablers being like, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. It's fine to do that. Mm. And you take that, and then the level to which they are exploiting this crisis to really try to drive down democracy is quite alarming. You saw it most uh, uh, intently in, uh, Wisconsin, but even mm -hmm. the comments afterwards, right? You know, the, the president of the United States being like, no, I don't like vote by mail. I think it's fraud, um, mm -hmm. even though he votes by mail. Right. And so the that I think is one of the things to be most concerned about is how much are we going to be able to even have democracy? Because if there's any, you know, crack in the, uh, you know, our, our resistance against this, they're totally going to try to exploit that. So that's one of the biggest things. And so that's that piece. And then I think it's linked to this issue around, are we going to be able to have the kind of turnout that's going to be necessary to get this guy out of office? And so they think these things are somewhat related, but fundamentally we've got to make sure people are inspired, motivated, and actually turning out in large numbers. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of turnout, you've carved out for yourself such a unique and important space in voter mobilization, fundraising, and especially lifting up the voices of the new American majority. How did you get started in this type of organizing work? And when did you hone in and focus on race and progressive politics? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's interesting questions. I'm actually working on a piece for the Nation uh, uh, magazine right now, looking at lessons that I learned that can be useful to people who were involved in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's campaigns. Right. So my my political mm -hmm. baptism was the Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns, uh, the Rainbow Coalition efforts of okay. uh, eighty four and eighty eight, and Jesse talked about how when the old minorities come together, they comprise a new majority. And so and actually I dedicated, uh, one of the people I dedicated my book to was Reverend Jackson. And in that dedication, I said that, you know, I, uh, who showed the world the power and possibility of a movement, the electoral candidacy tied to the movement for social justice in the country, I was paying attention. And so what he showed going from 
three and a half million votes in 84 to seven million votes in 88, 400 delegates in 84 to 1200 delegates in 88, highest second place finisher ever to that time. Hmm. I saw the electoral power of bringing the civil rights movement, the movement for social change into that space. And as I've been saying, I've really been trying to build the small R rainbow coalition ever hmm. since. You um, have done some amazing work, and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that. But I want to talk about one of you know you you teased your nation piece, which we should look out for. I want to <laughs> recommend to people that they read um, your recent New York Times op-ed, where you came out in strong favor for one particular running mate for Joe Biden. Uh, tell us how you came to your suggestion, and who yeah, it is. So- yeah, well, it's even it's more than a suggestion. Actually, my wife was asking me about it the other day. So what I really just started doing was looking at the what the data shows about the electoral strength of the various people who are being considered. And so there's a little bit of polling data, which is somewhat predictive about you know what constituencies relate. But what I looked at was the past electoral performance. And so we have exit poll data from how the candidates did with various with the electorate overall and then the various subsectors. And so you and there's several of the people who I've considered you have this data for. So it's Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, Catherine Cortez Masto, uh, Whitmer, um, Elizabeth Warren, um, Klobuchar. And so looking at all of that, comparing all of that, what really stands out in the areas where Biden is weakest, which is young people and African-American enthusiasm, which is distinct from getting support, but not for large numbers of African-American voters, and Latinos. And on all of those measures, looking at how the races were won and what the data shows, Stacey Abrams actually comes out ahead of all the other competitors on all of those areas, um, and not least of which I was really surprised to find in Georgia. Well, it's particularly find, surprised to find that Obama had lost young people in Georgia by three mm. percentage points when he ran in 2008. Hmm. Uh, Abrams won young people by 25 points when she ran in 2018. So she outperformed Obama with young people. And then you match that to how weak Biden is with young people. So that's what really made the case compelling um, to me, looking at the numbers, that Abrams, is pr- her track record is significantly superior to all of the other people being considered. It's interesting. I was I listened to your podcast where you go into depth on on the vice presidential uh, hopefuls or or you know possibilities, and I was wondering in Kamala Harris's case if she hadn't been running against Loretta Sanchez, if she perhaps would have done better uh, with the Latino uh, vote in California. Yeah, in some ways that that's that's uh, uh, a good deep dive you did into the data there, because <laughs> um, that question did you know as I was looking at it did that does come up, and so it is a on one hand it's a different um, it's it's a more skewed to a certain extent because it was two Democrats running against each other, two women of color Democrats running against each other, and so I think that that is fair in terms of the Latino piece that had she been running against a white Republican, she probably would have had stronger numbers. Um, what is notable is that um, she, she was, her numbers among African-Americans, while strong, are not Stacey Abrams strong, right? So she got 79% yeah. of African-Americans, Abrams got 93%. So that's where I did feel like that comparison held up. And also wow. Stacey Abrams, uh, organizers, her entire crew are just amazing. The, um, 
they they have been an example to organizers all over the country. So that's an exciting component to add to the Biden campaign as well. That would be nice. If your, <laughs> your lips to Biden's ears. Right? <laughs> um, let's talk about the new American majority. Who are they and how are they transforming our political landscape right now? Right. So this was the this was the most difficult part of my book to write in the second chapter is who is the new American majority? And then it was, it, it's like at one point we were like, well, how granular do you get? Right. Cause there are like 15 different Asian nationalities, like 12 or 13 different Latino nationalities. Mm-hmm. I remember at one point my editor says this chapter is both too long and too short. <laughs> so, <laughs> And that was quite illuminating. I was like, it's true. I can cut a lot out because this really could be a whole book. So in essence, and really what you I feel that way about most podcast interviews, by the way. Oh, funny. (laughs) It's true. Um, So the really – what the motivating factor to write my book was my sense of alarm about how people had not properly understood the Obama victory uh, and the Obama victories in 2008 and 2012. And so it seemed – not just logical, but self-evident to me, right? Having come out of the Rainbow Coalition, seen that effort, seen that the Obama was an extension of that effort of mobilization of voters of color and progressive whites. But there was too little appreciation of that um, in the, certainly in democratic and progressive spaces. So I really wanted to try to break down and quantify and clarify what were the essence of what Obama's coalition was. And so that's what I mean by the new American majority, and particularly looking at uh, the 2012 numbers, is that Obama got 5 million fewer white votes in 2012 than 2008. So I think a lot of people, you know, got caught up in, but were, you know, inspired by the, you know, hope and change, making history. But then I was, a lot of people dropped off by 2012. So in 2012, that's where I feel like, well, these are the folks who are, the, you know, more core progressive whites who actually stuck with him. Mm-hmm. So at its at its broadest strokes, it's uh, roughly 80% of people of color and 37, 39% of whites. Together, that's a majority of the people in the country. It's a majority of the eligible voters. And that was the Obama, not just the Obama majority, by the way. That's also the majority that gave 3 million more votes to Clinton than Trump got, which is something we forget often, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't forget it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it makes me sad every day. Right. But people, we, I think we carry ourselves with the sense that Trump has majority support. And I think that that's why I keep reminding folks that this is not a majority president and that, um, but he, he acts like he has all the support, but in point of fact, he doesn't. Very important to remember. In, in fact, uh, Mitt Romney actually got more votes than Donald Trump did. Right. Yeah. And in, particularly in a place like Wisconsin, right, that Romney got more votes than Trump did. And so that's a critical component to understanding what happened in 2016 is that it was not that all these people defected and voted for Trump. It's that the Democratic vote dropped. Right. I mentioned your uh, your latest episode of the podcast where you dissect some VP hopefuls. If people haven't listened to your podcast yet, do you have a favorite episode that they should start with? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one of the first episodes, one of the first three episodes you did was an interview with Stacey Abrams. And so I do ah, recommend people uh, to check that out. 
Um, we had a very good conversation, I think, pertinent to these times, uh, two episodes ago with the journalist Ron Brownstein, where, and then in terms of this new American majority piece, I think what's funny, my editor when I was writing the book was said, you should put, a, you know, reference other people who validate your analysis and share your point of view. And I was like, there really aren't that many people. It's kind of just Ron Brownstein, right? Hmm. But that <laughs> he, um, I think more than most people, he's framed up what's happening in this country as a battle between two coalitions, coalition of restoration and coalition of transformation. So restoration is the Trump crowd make, you know, take America back and the transformation was the Obama coalition. And then when you look at things through that prism, a lot of what's happening in this country makes sense, including, we talked a fair amount about that, is the coronavirus responses in terms of how these different coalitions and the members of these coalitions are responding to this moment. So that episode I actually thought was very uh, engaging and and on point. So you have a, a to listen list for us. But you also have a to-do for us. Uh, Democracy in Color is one of Swing Left's partners in the Big Send. What impact are you hoping to have with this letter-writing campaign, and why should volunteers pitch in? Yeah, so we're excited to partner with, with Swing Left around it. So a lot of people want to know, there's so there's so much wrong and so many bad things happening. This was even before you know the whole pandemic, is that it can be overwhelming and just trying yeah. to know where do I focus my efforts? What can I do? What can I do to make a difference? Um, and so we think that we you know we we talk to a lot of people. We have an analysis of what's happening in different places, and so we try to make recommendations regularly to you know our listeners and our our followers around how to help, what they can do to channel their energy, their target, their limited energy and effort into an area which will make a difference. And so the letter writing campaign um, is an important, it's something people can do that's also manageable right, without having to be you know, overwhelmed in terms of their time and, and, right. and energy. And the data shows that personal connections are what are most helpful in terms of voter turnout. Mm-hmm. And so getting a personal letter from somebody is not your typical 30-second television ad, et cetera. It's the type of intervention which um, both, I think, you know, intuitively as well as empirically is shown to make a difference. And so to be able to have a group like Swing Left provide the infrastructure and the, you know, air traffic control around being able to mm-hmm. route the different letters in the right places is a really very valuable service. And so that's why we were encouraging people to participate in that, to channel their energies in ways that would make a difference. That's awesome. We really appreciate it. And you started out uh, our conversation talking about the very real concerns that we have for our democracy and elections in general. Um Let's end up here by sharing what gives you the most hope for our future. Well, it's what we touched on a little, a little bit, and it's the whole, this whole underlying concept around majority and who has who actually is the majority. And that, that was another interesting piece that you know Ron Brownstein affirmed in our conversation with him is that the New American Majority, the Coalition of Transformation, is bigger. It's the majority of people within this country and that this president does not now and has not ever had majority support. And if you look on tight, if you, he continues to act as if he does. And but when you actually quantify, and I was surprised to find this, is that not only did we like take back the Congress, right, in terms of all these different elections that have taken place since 2016, is we flipped eight governorships that were Republican held. 
since he took he took office. So all of the empirical data shows that the electoral trends are in our favor. And if we can actually mobilize, have high turnout, stay unified, which was a, a big problem in 2016, you know, people splintering right. third and fourth party. If we can do all of that, we definitely should remove this man from the White House and get this country back on t- course. Well, when you say it like that, <laughs> it sounds pretty easy. No problem. Everyone <laughs> needs to show up and vote and then we win. Yeah. Done. <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Steve Phillips, thank you again for joining us. Um, Everyone, please check out Democracy in Color. And uh, thanks for your continued work and, and partnership with Swing Left. We enjoy it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We want to hear from you. Let us know how you're doing during the coronavirus pandemic. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. Thanks so much to our friends at Demcast who have a great website that promotes progressive articles and podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast and rate and review us on Apple or wherever else you get your pods that really helps more people find us uh, mm-hmm. and share us on social media. Use the hashtag how we win 2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We so appreciate you spending time with us and we'll be back with more next Wednesday. See you then. To make America's craft wine, you've got to make it like America. Bold, ambitious, unconventional. Crushing grapes like our forefathers crushed kings. So grab a bottle of America's craft wine, like our Lodi Cab with bold berries and tart cherry, the Honest Red Blend with plums and blackberry, a juicy Zinfandel, or a smoky bourbon barrel aged. Pour it in a glass and go forth, because there's history in the making. The Federalist, America's craft wine. Federalist Vineyard, Lodi, California. Enjoy responsibly.